All right. Good to see everybody. Before we get going, if you don't have notes, I think you'd be really helped if you grabbed some notes that are on the back. So um, Bob Dunning is going back there, and he will grab a bunch. And anybody that raises their hand, along with David Ward, will help him. And yeah, grab some notes from Bob and um, raise your hand high and grab you some notes. We are going to be drinking from a fire hose a little bit tonight. We've got a lot of ground to cover. And I want to do it very quickly because um, my hope is that uh, we'll have a, a good amount of time at the end for questions, discussion. I think we'll probably benefit uh, maybe even more from that, just hearing from each other, asking questions and all that. So before I do that, a couple little things. Um, if you are a young adult, you're generally um, at the Hawks House on Wednesday night. Will wanted me to let you know that immediately, if you didn't get word, immediately following tonight, you guys are going to be going to Sweet Frog to get yogurt or whatever they sell there or something like that um and then um uh, and then you're scotty hill you're welcome to go too like will always says young adult is kind of a subjective term so um all right and then also um before i forget we want to pray tonight and i will in just a second for our china team uh springer kane is leading a team to china i'm not sure how many folks a smaller group maybe eight to ten or so um, and they're getting on a plane tomorrow, and that's a long journey, so they'll be there working with Trisha Jeems, uh, Jay and Trisha Jeems, members of the church here. Trisha's brother, Travis Todd, and his wife, Sonia, are missionaries there in China, and so um, really looking forward to our team being able to encourage them and, and, uh, and, and kind of hold up their arms and be a blessing to them. All right, before we get into this topic of, um, of homosexuality and how Christians should think about it and uh, be, uh, uh, just engage the culture, I want to give away a couple resources, um, and these are books that are in our resource room. The first is uh, just a, a short, very readable, very clear book by a pastor up in Michigan. His name is Kevin DeYoung. have a lot of respect for him. Very clear thinker. He's very solid theologically. And he has written a book called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? And um, it's just, it, he basically, he covers the, uh, biblically the arguments uh, from, for a traditional and correct understanding of human sexuality and homosexuality from the Bible. And then he, in the second part, answers objections. And we have this for sale in the resource room. Does anybody want this book? This would be really helpful. Danny D. Chris, can you throw that to... to to Danny D. And then there's two books. I tell you what, I cannot recommend you reading these books highly enough. These are two books written by a woman whose name is Rosaria Butterfield, and she was a very outspoken, very liberal uh, lesbian professor at Syracuse University in, in New York. And um, she uh, was in a lesbian relationship and was very kind of for all of the causes that go along with that. Um, and she uh, wrote something in her local paper in Syracuse. A Presbyterian pastor, an elderly Presbyterian pastor in Syracuse, responded to her letter that she had written, like a letter to the editor, and responded to her personally. And that struck up a relationship between this pastor and his wife and this lady, Rosaria Butterfield, who was an English professor at Syracuse University, and it began a friendship, and over the course of several years, they witnessed her, and she eventually uh, turned to Christ, turned from her lifestyle, and now is a, a homeschool pastor's wife, homeschooling pastor's wife in North Carolina. 
And she has written two books uh, about her journey. The first is really more personally about her journey um, from just kind of adamant um, uh, lesbianism. Um, and it's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, An English Professor's Journey into the Christian Faith. I read this. All right, Colby, I see you. I read this about a year ago, and I almost read it in one sitting. I couldn't put it down. She is a wonderful communicator. I, I just, it just, it's just great. She's a great writer. I've heard her speak several times, like on, you know, on the internet. Excellent. So this is her journey of conversion. So Chris Rhodes, could you, could you throw this back to, to Colby Long back there? And then she just came out with a second book. All right. <laughs> All right, okay. Um, oh, we're dropping money. So I just, she just came out with a second book called Openness Unhindered, Further Thoughts of an Unlikely Con- Convert on Sexual Identity and Union with Christ. And so in this book, where that book that Colby has is more of her personal experience and her conversion and really is a wonderful book about the power of the ordinary Christian and church to just be a, a winsome, gracious, but clear gospel witness. I mean, that book is just wonderful. It's a wonderful book for every Christian to read about how we should engage a broken culture. This book is a little bit more of, a, of an exposition on uh, what should happen to a person when they're converted and how that impacts every area of her life. In her, area, in her instance, it was obviously radically transformed her sexuality and her identity as a person. But the truths that she speaks about don't just apply to sexuality or homosexuality. It's really just a wonderful examination of what it means to be a Christian in a broken world. I, I tell you, this lady is an unbelievably gifted writer. I, I can't commend it high enough. I mean, she's just, anytime she writes something, a blog post or whatever, I just gobble it up. Super, super good. This is called Openness Unhindered. Anybody want, I saw you, right? Did, did this, we, I'm sorry, Mar, uh, Marilyn, I, the young guy had his hand up first. So, Chris, you're the gopher tonight. Sorry about that. Marilyn, they're, they're on, the, in, on sale in the resource room. Get Big Poppy next to you to buy you. A All right, and then there's an article. This is free for you to just take a... This is an article that we'll, we'll reference in a little bit, written by Tim Keller, just front and back. It's called Old Testament Law and the Charge of Inconsistency. So if you've ever had to battle somebody telling you, oh, well, in the Old Testament it says don't eat shellfish, um, and, you know, what, but that doesn't apply today, so you Christians just kind of pick and choose which laws you, you follow... Um, that would be an excellent uh, uh, article for you to read. Just very, very clear, very helpful. And we'll get into a little bit of the reasoning and logic behind that in just a minute. Okay. Well, welcome to the first night. We're going to deal with what it means to be a Christian in a broken culture. We're going to look at homosexuality. We're going to look next week at abortion and some reproductive things that I think are just ethically really important for a Christian. Um, we're going to look at race relations, politics, and social media. And you may be thinking, oh, that's not big of a deal. But I think as we get into that, we're going to realize what a grip that has on our hearts. And not just the, not just the young people. I mean, even, I, think even, I think even my generation and above is more jacked up with Facebook. I, mean, I think kids actually handle it better than we do. But anyway, enough of that. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Well, Father, um, we need your help tonight. This is a weighty issue. And Lord, this isn't just... Um, this isn't just a theological position only. This is about people who are made in your image, who are fallen, just like every person that's ever been born. And we pray tonight that you would help us think clearly and biblically about what it means to be in Christ, what it means to fight sin, what it means to be redeemed, 
and what it means to be a Christian in a culture that is increasingly opposed to you and your word and your way. So help us to think wisely, uh, winsomely, deeply, courageously about, about this issue. And I'm sure in this room we have dear loved ones in our family. Maybe even some in this room are struggling with same-sex attraction. I pray, God, that tonight would be helpful to them and an encouragement to them. Lord, we pray for our team that is about to uh, leave for China tomorrow morning. We pray for your traveling mercies on them. And we pray for uh, the team to be a great, a great help and a great encouragement to the Todds. Bless us now as we turn our attention to your word and truths from it. I pray that uh, you'd keep us on task and that our discussion and our time tonight would be fruitful for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's get into it. We've got three questions, basically, we want to ask tonight. First, very quickly, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Secondly, what are the main arguments for the acceptance of homosexuality? Or in, in, stated another way, what are the objections to the, uh, what I'm going to present here in just a second, what I think is the faithful, uh, true stance, a biblical stance on, on how we should view homosexuality and really all human sexuality? So the second question then, what would be the objection to what I will present in, in point number one? And then the third point that we'll look at is just what should our response be as Christians? And then I want us to spend some time um, with some questions that, that you may have as well. So um, let's get into it. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? Well, first, uh, the Old Testament clearly prohibits it. I think very few people, regardless of where they may stand on this issue, would disagree with that. And um, so Genesis chapter 2, we see where God in um, the garden, he makes Adam and Eve, and then he gives um, Adam uh, a helper, and he says in verse 18 <coughs> of chapter 2 of Genesis, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So there's already, there's this complementary aspect to what God is doing with humanity between a man and a woman. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was found no helper fit for him. And if we took the time, we want to go back to Genesis 1 and earlier in 2, you see this complementary nature of creation and then the pinnacle of the complementary nature of creation is, is, is we really see it in mankind. So he creates, he separates the darkness from the light, right? And then the sea from the land, and then the, the animals from the vegetation. And so there's this complementary nature to these, these, these pairs in creation, and then we see even that complementary nature. So night and day go together. They're not the same, but they go together. Uh, earth and sea aren't the same, but they go together. Animals, they go together. And then the, as the pinnacle of that complementary nature of creation, we see man and woman then created. So he, he uh, verse 20, the man gave, or verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother 
and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So before we even get into any scriptures that were that clearly, and there are, there are a good number of them, that clearly talk about specific actions that are sin, before we even do that, I think it's very important that we understand that, that at its core, in creation, we see God's design where even the anatomy and the physical makeup of a male and female are meant to complement one another and are meant to uh, fit together so that they would be one. And then, in fact, we read later on in Ephesians where Paul then uses this verse about a man and a woman being one to be a picture of something greater. So when a man and a woman come together in sexual union, certainly there are many purposes there for their joy and, and pleasure, for the procreation of, of humanity. But at its most primary purpose, when a man and a woman are coming together, even their bodies are connecting in, in intimacy as a man and a wife, that oneness, and only a male and female body can fit together in that way, that oneness, Paul says in Ephesians 5, is meant to display the oneness of Christ with his bride, the church. Now, I'm not saying in any way that there's anything sexual between Jesus and the church, but I'm saying that the temporary gift of human sexuality in marriage between a man and a woman and the way they anatomically fit together and complement one another as only a man and a woman can do. And don't get nervous. That's not why I have the board up here. I'm not going to draw any pictures. You guys are like, where's, where's, he, where's he going with this one? But I want you to see that, right? That that temporary physical complementary union is meant to be an earthly shadow of the heavenly eternal reality of our oneness with the groom, Jesus, right? And so even before we get into any admonitions about don't do this and do this, you, we see in the very order of creation the, uh, the naturalness of male and female complementary nature. So that's Genesis 2. Then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fell and everything was fractured and out of joint. And I think just a, an absolutely essential understanding, uh, a thing that you have to have in place before you can understand the Bible in anything uh, well is just to understand what happened in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve rebelled and Paul interprets for us in Romans 5 verse 12 what happened in Genesis 3. He says that when that sin entered, death entered and we, the whole of humanity was fractured and fell. And so think of Adam and Eve as like a fount, as like a faucet or a spigot. And that spigot became polluted, and now everything that flows from that is, is diseased, it's broken, it's fractured. That is humanity. That's not to say we're as bad as we could be, but it's to say that every aspect of our being is out of sorts. It is separated from God and broken and affected, clearly, obviously, to include our sexuality. So sexual brokenness... Homosexual people do not have a corner on the market of sexual brokenness. Every person in this room is sexually broken to one degree or another, even if you are heterosexual. All of us are. That's what happened in Genesis 3. Then we see God has a plan. This didn't sneak up on him. God initiates the redemption of mankind and gives the law to his people, which ultimately points to Christ. Now, I realize we're fast-forwarding through a lot of the Old Testament and biblical history here, but we see God giving the law. So God creates mankind. 
mankind falls. This doesn't sneak up on God. From the fallen creation, God chooses one man, Abraham, to be a nation so that through this one nation, he might bless all the nations of the earth. And the way he is going to bless all the nations of the earth is by making this one nation, the people of God, Israel in the Old Testament, holy and distinct. And to make them holy and distinct, he starts to communicate very specifically with them and he gives them the law which its purpose is to come make them distinct, to help them see what is sin, where they're wrong, the way they should live, and what they need, which is a Savior. And so God gives a law, and that law doesn't just arise out of nowhere because God is a grumpy grandpa just wanting to mess with people, but that law is given to form his people as a distinct people out of all the peoples of the earth so that his people would live holy and be distinct so that God would be honored and worshipped and be, people would be drawn to serve this God whose way is good. So he gives the law. And in that law, there are clear, clear admonitions about how we should live with our bodies and sexually. So in Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22, in fact, the whole chapter of Leviticus 18 is about unlawful sexual relations. And in there, clearly as stated in verse 22, he says, You shall not lie with a male as with, uh, with, a, male as with a woman. It is an abomination. It's Levitic, that's just one of the important texts in the Bible. It's repeated again in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them had committed an, an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And so God is... Along with many other things, God is marking out a people and giving them direct commands. And clearly, in the Old Testament, as part of God's law, uh, the, the sex, homosexuality is out of bounds for God's people. So the Old Testament clearly prohibits homosexuality. I don't think really, hardly anybody, uh, regardless of where they may be, even those that are proponents of homosexual lifestyle today, most of them don't dispute that. Some of them may. And we'll talk about one of the objections in just a moment. But w here's where the rub is, and here's where I want you to understand. This is part, the letter D there is really important. We need to understand the relationship between the Old Testament law and the New Testament Christians, because I, I'm sure you've probably heard this objection. You, it may be, well, okay, Brad, I see that the Old Testament speaks directly about homosexuality, but, you know, it also speaks about shellfish. In fact, in that very same book, it talks about shellfish and wearing the same types of fabric. And so you Christians just pick and choose what laws you want to uh, obey or condemn. Have you ever heard that argument? Okay. So then, and this is what Keller's article is really good at helping, and I encourage you to pick that up. Got a bunch of copies in the resource room. We have to understand the relationship between the Old Testament law and the New Testament Christians. So let's pause here and settle down because this is really important that you kind of have a framework on how to, how to answer that question and see the nuances. Okay, so let's look at the Old Testament law. Okay, Old Testament law. Now, I think it's a helpful way to look at the Old Testament. The Bible doesn't necessarily delineate it like this, but as people observe and look at the Bible, I think they've come up with helpful categories to look at Old Testament law. There's, there's laws in the Old Testament. In fact, there's like 613 of them total if you added them all up. There's laws that speak about um, the ceremonial cleanness and just the sacrificial system, kind of, you know, how, 
Israel is to become ceremonial clean and to offer sacrifices to atone for their guilt before God, okay? Then there are laws that apply to um, kind of civil law. Like, you know, if you accidentally kill a neighbor's cow, uh, you know, this is what you should do to make restoration for that. Kind of civil laws to govern society. That's a good bit of the law in the Old Testament. And then probably what most of us are more fam- most familiar with is the moral law. Most pr- most kind of poignantly expressed in the Ten Commandments in Exodus, right? Exodus 19 and 20. So these three sort of aspects of the Old Testament law um, are, are, are a good way to look at it. So what does, what then is the relationship between the Old Testament law and the New Testament Christian? Okay? Well, Paul says something very, very important in Romans chapter, says it in several other places, and makes this point in several places in the New Testament. But in Romans chapter 8, which is, as you know, the greatest chapter ever written, Romans chapter 8, Paul says something very important about what Jesus did. In fact, we're going to get to it when we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, I don't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In other words, this law, this law can't save. All this law can do is shed light on our brokenness and our sin. The reformers used to talk about the purposes of the law. The law tells us what is wrong. The law tells us what is right. And the law tells us what is needed, which is a Savior. But it can't do anything to save us. It just illuminates the fact that we need a Savior. So God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own sin in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So let me tell you what that means, is that that's the message of the gospel in the New Testament. The the message of the law is we are guilty. We can never do enough. Even those of us that can, can do, you know, 99% of the law, if we're guilty in just one aspect of the law, we're guilty of the whole thing, the Bible says. And so the good news of the gospel is, is that Jesus comes and he, he obeys the law for us. He lives, he is the only human that has perfectly and righteously obeyed the law to the nth degree fully. And then he lays down that perfect life as a sacrifice on the cross to bear the wrath of God that should have been ours. So Jesus is bearing the punishment for our law-breaking. And because he's not just a perfect man in his 33 years, but because he's also the eternally holy, infinitely righteous Son of God, God Himself in the flesh, He has enough holiness to extinguish all of the wrath of the Father and satisfy it. That's what that word propitiation means when you come across it, across it in the New Testament. And so Jesus, that's what Paul means in Romans 8.4 when he says that Jesus satisfies, He fulfills the law for us, the righteous requirement. So Jesus fulfills the law, He dies, bears our punishment, 
But that's not all of the good news of the gospel. Then Jesus rises again and now is alive and now commands us to repent and believe and gives his righteousness. He makes his people righteous. So there's the, there's the great exchange that Luther's talking about. Jesus takes our sin, he takes the punishment for our law-breaking, and he gives us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. So Jesus becomes the wrath-absorbing sacrifice and our righteousness and now gives us his righteousness and now we are made right with God and the law, the requirements of the law are satisfied in Jesus. And then the righteousness of being a law abider is now given to us. Isn't that scandalously good news? That's what it means to be a Christian. And when that truly happens to you, then what is your relationship to this law? Okay, because now you are made alive and now you are enabled by God's Spirit to walk in obedience to God. Well, let's look at this. The ceremonial and sacrificial system, that is no longer necessary. It was a temporary aspect of the law that Jesus fulfilled. And now we don't need a sacrifice because we are in Christ. And that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. We don't need to go to the altar with a goat or a a bird or a bull yearly because Jesus once and for all has made us clean if we are in him, right? We don't need civil law because now the people of God are not outlined by a geographical border called Israel or the Holy Land. Now we are one new man in Christ. That's Ephesians 2, right? So the people of God are not, are not governed by civil law they're governed by the law of the Spirit. So the law, the civil law that governed Israel in the Old Testament no longer applies to the church in the New Testament. And now, though, this moral law, this moral law we do see in the New Testament as being enforced. It's the, it's the law of Christ we see in the New Testament. The, the imperatives of the, of the New Testament that tell us, you know, if Colossians 3, put off the deeds of the flesh, right? Don't do this. So there are many commands, maybe we could call them laws in the New Testament that are, the, are, that are picked up, that are, that are essentially the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. And so these are still, these are still enforced. The, these imperatives of what it means to be a person of God are still enforced right? So all of these sexual, all of these laws about human sexuality are picked up again in the New Testament and repeated. Don't, you know, don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. Don't lust. It even goes deeper. Don't just do it. Don't, don't even think about it. And don't, don't, homosexuality is, is again prohibited in the New Testament, which we'll read. But friends, that's why when we read the Old Testament, when people say, oh, shellfish, and here you got sexuality, you Christians are picking and choosing. And you can say, no, when you understand the law rightly, you understand that shellfish in the Old Testament is not equal 
to sexu sexuality across the Testaments. Does that make sense? We, we stop for questions. Um, uh, we, we, if you have any questions on that, I want you to ask. But that is really, really, really important. I don't want you to be intimidated by that, that really uninformed objection. Oh, Christians, well, you, you can eat shellfish or wear you know, two uh, types of uh, fabric clothes, and yet you condemn them. Both are condemned in the Bible. That's just a, a very weak understanding of how Old Testament law does not apply in that same way across the board to the New Testament Christian. So that's why we can say, don't kill your neighbor, don't sleep with your neighbor's wife, and don't sleep with somebody or, or have sexual activity with somebody of the same sex, because all of those things are picked up again in the New Testament, whereas all of these ceremonial and civil laws come to an end through Christ's obedience. Okay, more on that later, I'm sure, as, as we have opportunity to ask questions. And then... Um, we see then in the New Testament that Paul prohibits it. So we're going to pick, now that we're going to get into this, the imperatives of the New Testament, where Paul um, clearly uh, prohibits homosexual behavior. So in Romans chapter 1, a very important text. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in these, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, as a judgment, then, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So clearly in this text, Paul is speaking about homosexual behavior. M women are exchanging the natural use of their body for lesbian activity. Men are exchanging the natural use of their body for passion for one another. That's not the only place that Paul mentions it. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6 as well. And friends, uh, sometimes people will say, oh, well, you're just zeroing in on one sin. We're going to handle that objection in just a second. We're not zeroing in on homosexuality as if it's, you know, in some special class of itself. We're, we're just, that's the issue tonight. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So clearly in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, we won't take time to read 1 Timothy 1, but Paul clearly, clearly prohibits it. What does Jesus have to say about it? Jesus prohibits it as well. So Jesus um, in Matthew chapter 19 is reinforcing and um, re 
agreeing with the Old Testament, which obviously is part of the Trinity. He, he helped to write. Um, he is establishing marriage. He is reinforcing that marriage is between one man and one woman as the only grounds for human sexual expression. So Matthew chapter 19, um, starting in verse 3, the Pharisees are asking him about uh, divorce. And is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He, he, he answered in verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus is, remember, agreeing with the establishment of the purpose of marriage being the one flesh union between a man and a woman as the only grounds for human sexual uh, expression. Then Jesus whittles it down even more in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus prohibits all sexual practice outside of marriage between one man and one woman. Often a, a, a criticism or an objection of the, I think, true and faithful biblical view on human sexuality is that Jesus, people will say as an objection, that Jesus never outright condemns homosexuality or mentions it. Well, I think that's an uninformed view. In Matthew chapter, and I'll tell you why, Matthew chapter 15 Verse 19, Jesus says this. He says, um, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So that word, sexual immorality, in the original language is porneia, which we get, obviously, a, a word in English here, pornography. But that word in every major Greek dictionary would define it as all sexual activity out of the confines of marriage between a man and a woman, including adultery, fornication, and homosexuality. So the idea, the sin of homosexuality is embedded in that word when Jesus says uh, that word, porneia, for uh, sexual immorality. And people say, well, he doesn't mention it. Well, he doesn't mention, you know, bestiality as, as well. But nobody's arguing for um, the legalization or the normalization of bestiality, at least not yet. I'm actually probably there are some people that are. But the point is, is that um, embedded in this word, sexual immorality, it includes, it, it, it covers, it's a wide net. It covers everything outside of the sexual union between a man and a woman in marriage. So that includes heterosexual premarital sexual activity. And maybe some people in this room need to hear that tonight, right? So Jesus prohibits it clearly. So the conclusion is, the Bible is clear, homosexuality along with, and I want to emphasize this, along with all sexual activity outside of marriage between a husband and wife is incompatible with the Christian life. Having said that, homosexuality clearly, brothers and sisters, is not the one unpardonable sin. Paul mentions this in a list of other sins. We're zeroing in on it tonight because clearly this is the issue and it's such a big deal in our culture. But clearly, homosexuality, along with all sexual activity outside of marriage between a husband and wife, is incompatible with the Christian life. So, that's what the Bible clearly says about homosexuality. Okay, flip the page, or maybe, maybe it's still on yours. I got a little extra notes on mine. The next question there, what are the main arguments for the acceptance of homosexuality? Let me move through these quickly so we can get to your questions. Well, I think probably the main objection to the position that I just stated, which is the biblical position, is just, I think, a simple disregard for the authority of the Bible. Um, and really, I think that, that is what... It, the, 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 uh, this argument here that the Old Testament is inconsistent with the New Testament, 
Um, this idea that the Bible's not authoritative, this is, it kind of springs from people who don't understand it. They say, oh, well, the Bible's inconsistent. No, it's not, if you understand what it's saying. It's not inconsistent. But they say, oh, the Bible's inconsistent, so how can we really trust it? And they are essentially trying to undermine the authority of the Bible. And so they would, many liberal, many people, liberal Christians who would consider themselves Christians who may not be would often have this view that the Bible is not authoritative. Well, um, there's problems with that, obviously. We think that the Bible is authoritative, and we could spend a whole session on just the authority of the Bible. But let me read to you from a few scholars that are in favor of the, um, the, the position of, of accepting homosexuality. Let me tell you what they say about the Bible. So this is the gay Dutch scholar Pim Pronk, that's his name, he says, after admitting that many Christians are eager to see that homosexuality... So this is Kevin DeYoung writing in the book. The gay scholar, Pronk, after admitting that many Christians are eager to see homosexuality supported in the Bible, states plainly, quote, quoting the scholar, in this case, that biblical support is lacking. Wherever homosexual, homosexual intercourse is mentioned in Scripture, it is condemned. Rejection is a foregone conclusion. So that is a gay Bible scholar who is advocating for the acceptance of homosexuality. And he's saying, you know what? For us as a a liberal homosexual sort of uh, wing here, to use the Bible to support our case, we really can't, guys. We just need to admit that we don't believe in the authority of the Bible. We think that the Bible's wrong on this, okay? That's what he's saying. And I think he's at least being honest about that. Another scholar and this one is a little, he's not Dutch. This guy's from um, Atlanta, and his name is um, uh, Luke Timothy Johnson. Listen to what Dr. Johnson has to say. A well-respected New Testament scholar at the Candler School of Theology in Emory, up in Atlanta, who supports homosexual behavior, speaks to the issue with refreshing candor. I think it important, he says, quote, I think it important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God created us. Our friends, clearly we would disagree with that. But I at least appreciate his intellectual honesty. He is saying that, look, I just don't, I think the Bible clearly teaches that homosexuality is wrong. I just don't accept that that is authoritative. Do you get that? So that's that. That's that's objection number one, a simple disregard for the authority of the Bible. And I actually think that is sort of underlying just virtually all all of these other arguments as well. I I think that's the main one. The second um, uh, objection would be, we hinted at this, is that Jesus did not address it and the Bible as a whole only mentions it several times. Well, um, arguments from silence are weak. So like I said, Jesus never specifically condemned incest or bestiality, but no one argues for that. Well, again, you have to almost couch your, what you say. I mean, generally, nobody argues for that, right? Jesus was not silent on the issue of human sexuality. And we just read in Matthew 15, uh, verse 19, that he, when he uses this word sexual immorality, it is embedded in it all sexual sin outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And then 
we, people that, that, that sometimes speak specifically about that Jesus didn't, express, didn't speak to it have a wrong view of the inspiration of Scripture. There are these people that sometimes focus on what they, they sometimes call themselves red-letter Christians. Have you ever heard that? And maybe you've kind of bought in, like, yeah, I'm a red-letter Christian. I just want to, that is such a, that's, that's a, such a short-sighted way of looking at the Bible. The Trinity wrote the whole Bible, right? So if Paul says it, God says it, and Jesus is God, right? And so Jesus, the red words of the Bible, have no more authority than the black words of the Bible because all of it is written by God. Right? So that's pitting Paul and Jesus against one another as if they're at odds. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Okay, so that argument falls apart. The third argument there, the type of homosexuality condemned in the Bible was, was not the same kind, and this is a common one. Um, people claim that they would say, uh, uh, people that would uh, disagree with the position that we would hold biblically would say that they would claim that what is condemned in the Bible was exploitive uh, homosexuality, like either rape or molestation of a, of a man on a boy, or, or, it's, or it's a type of homosexuality not based on orientation. It's just, say, two heterosexual guys that just kind of got bored with homosexual, or two heterosexual people that just got bored and just sort of, you know, uh, engaged in homosexual act, but they weren't truly homosexual. And so they say that, that... Um, What's being condemned in the Bible is that type of homosexuality, either exploitive, rape, or uh, like non-committed homosexual activity. And that's just, again, that just falls down. There's much evidence uh, because they say that that type of uh, consensual relationships just wasn't, wasn't around in ancient times. That's just not true. Um, and then we see in Romans chapter 1, verse 27 that we read earlier that it says that men were consumed with passion for one another. So there's no uh, sense in any of the texts that we read from Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, or, or Romans chapter 1 that hint in any way that it's an exploitive type of, it's speaking about the act of homosexuality. And honestly, if you just kind of say it out loud, uh, this argument is sort of silly, especially the argument that says that, oh, the type of homosexuality that's being condemned in the Bible is not the consenting homosexuality between two people that really love each other. Just, just say it out loud. So what you're saying then is that Paul isn't prohibiting sex between true homosexuals, but just sex between homose- heterosexuals doing homosexual things. I mean, it just, it just, sounds, it just sounds a little, a little silly. And we'll get to your questions in just a second, Dan. Yeah. And then we get that argument from 1 Corinthians, which is one of the big points that Paul is lambasting the Corinthian church with, but that falls down because he's also talking about it in Romans 1, where he's talking about humanity, not just a, a specific, good, but good point, Danny. So um, that argument falls apart. And then I think just kind of a, a sort of a bleeding heart, sort of uninformed view of the Bible. Some people would say, none of us are perfect and it's not hurting anyone. But friends, if we really understand what sin is and what the consequences are, then love compels us to persuade our neighbor. So if we saw a person running out into traffic or sprinting off of a cliff, we would surely say, stop. 
And if we saw somebody engaging in some type of activity that is going to put them at odds, giving themselves over to it, whether it is homosexual sex or whether it is heterosexual sexual sin, it is, we, we love binds us as a Christian, makes us duty-bound to call out, to say, stop. So it is hurting somebody. It's hurting the person that is giving themselves over that may not understand the truth. Um, and so that, that objection falls apart. And then uh, I think uh, the last one here, what about other sins that the church overlooks? I think this is a stinging, reject, uh, a stinging indictment that we need to feel. Yes. And so when somebody says that to me, I say, yeah, you know what? You're right. The church is often very hypocritical. And we need to own that. We need to take that one on the chin. And we need to type, be the type of grace-filled community that doesn't let the adulterer sort of, boy, you shouldn't do that, and let him continue to think that he's right with God. We need to practice meaningful membership and church discipline. And to the person who's engaged in heterosexual sin, we need to say the same message to them Turn from your sin, brother or sister, or be at odds with a holy God, right? And that, that is to our shame that that is often a true critique. of it, it undermines our ability to speak the gospel wisely and winsomely to people that are, that are caught up in homosexual sin. And then finally, what should be our response? And then we'll open it up for questions. Well, we should understand the nature of sin, salvation, and Christ-like love. So, again, we've made this point a lot. Homosexual sin will separate you from... Giving yourself over to it will separate yourself from God. So will giving yourself over to heterosexual sin and a many other great number of sins. Can a person who struggles with homosexual sin be a born-again believer? Absolutely. Just like a person who struggles with heterosexual sin can be a born-again believer. Praise God, otherwise none of us would be believers, right? So if you have gone through puberty, you have sinned to some degree sexually, even if it's been in your mind, the vast majority of us. So we're not saying that to be sinful, to, to, to have this attraction is going to put you at odds with the Holy God. We're going to say giving yourself over to it um, is incompatible with the Christian lifestyle. And we need to have a biblical understanding of all of sin, not just the sins that we pick and choose. And we should repent and recapture a biblical view of marriage and sex. And I think this is absolutely huge. Uh, I can't, I can't, um, I think this is another stinging indictment of the church, is that we in, especially I think in conservative Christian circles, we prop up family and sex, marital sex, to such a, an idol that we don't really have a message for the single person, the heterosexual single person who may be called to celibacy, or the young lady who maybe never has anybody, um, you know, ask her to marry her, or to the person who is same-sex attraction and may have to battle with that for the rest of their life and be celibate. We don't really have any alternative for that because we've made the epitome of human existence to be marriage and sexual fulfillment. And that is just wrong. I'm not saying it's not a gift. I'm not saying it's not a wonderful thing. But it is not the epitome of what it means to be a human, to express yourself sexually. And we lie to an onlooking world when we make that the highest order of humanity. Listen to what Kevin DeYoung says. This is good. Got it up on the screen. It's going to knock a few of us. It's going to step on our toes and punch us in the gut. But this is good. He says, 
about calling homosexual people, people in our churches who are wrestling with same-sex desire to possibly a celibate lifestyle, taking God's side against their sin, maybe realizing, unlike Rosaria Butterfield, whose desires changed, that that won't happen for everybody. He says, our ability to call, we need to be able to call them to a lifelong faithfulness to Christ, which is better than fulfilling yourself sexually. He says, but of course, up on the screen there, None of this can be possible without uprooting the idolatry of the nuclear family which holds sway in many conservative churches. The trajectory of the New Testament is to relativize the importance of marriage and biblical kinship. A spouse and a minivan full of kids on the way to Disney World is a sweet gift and a terrible God. If everything in Christian community revolves around being married with children, we should not be surprised when singleness sounds like a death sentence. So what do we say to the young man who's wrestling with homosexuality, right? What do we say to him? We had one in this church who was living for God, who, who ever since he can remember, he was born attracted to other boys. And he heard the gospel, was convicted of his sin. He moved on from here, but he gave a testimony a few years ago. And he talked about how he is prepared to take God's side against his sin till the end of his days and never act out on his desires again. And what hope, hope does the gospel hold out? Oh, you're a second-class citizen because you may never have a woman as a, as a wife? No. It's not a death sentence to never fulfill your sexual desires. If that's the church challenge, what's needed in the wider culture is a deep demythologizing of sex. Nothing in the Bible encourages us to give sex the exalted status it has in our culture as if finding our purpose, our identity, and our fulfillment all rest on what we can or cannot do with our private parts. Jesus is the fullest example of what it means to be human, and he never had sex. How did we come to think that the most intense emotional attachments and the most fulfilling aspects of life can only be expressed with sexual intimacy? In the Christian vision of heaven, there is no marriage in the blessed life to come. Marital intimacy is but a shadow of a brighter, more glorious reality, the marriage of Jesus Christ to his bride, the church. If sexual intimacy is nothing up there, how can we make it to be everything down here? Friends, that, that's a good word. That's a hard word, but it's a word we need. And friends, let's just admit, man, I mean, we, 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 we live in such a sexualized culture. It, we, it is the air we breathe. We can't even imagine heterosexuals. It's like we don't even have a category for not being fulfilled. And we need to have much sympathy and grace for people. And we need to create a culture where death, where, where singleness, whether it's heterosexual singleness or people that are taking God's side against their same-sex attraction is not a death sentence here on this, in this life. That's a good word for us. Um, we must treat all people with dignity and respect and love them by pointing them to Jesus, obviously. So we don't, we don't, we don't mock people. We don't lambaste them. We don't say harsh things. We, we, in kind, gracious, winsome, we want to point them to Christ. If a loved one or a friend is homosexual, we should love them, but be clear about the gospel and sin. Friends, that is incredibly difficult. Um, I'm sure that's touched many of us here. And then finally, just um, uh, finishing up here, we must reject indifference and care deeply about uh, the impact of laws regarding marriage. So that's why I think younger evangelicals need to probably, they, I've heard this a lot from younger Christians, like, ah, oh, what does it really matter that these marriage laws got changed and now we, I mean, it's not really affecting anybody. Well, yes, it is. It's, it's, it's affecting our culture. It, our kids grow up in a culture where sin is normalized to a greater degree and we're, we care about these people's soul and, 
and we're, they're at odds with their creator God and it's not good for them. We need to care deeply about these things. Um, so these are, I think, ways that we should respond as Christians. We can say a lot more. So let me stop now. I've talked too long. Let's answer any questions that you may have and maybe some of the guys can run a microphone around. Um, that'd be helpful. Will, thank you. Anybody have any questions at all? Yeah, see, in the shadows there, I can't really. Let's get a microphone because we're recording it, so. Um. Yep. Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Um, this actually uh, kind of bounces off of under section three we had, uh, what would our response be as a Christian? Uh, uh-huh. Specifically question five, you know, how... W- you know, ensuring that we don't, you know, react indifferently yeah. um, to the laws that have recently been passed in regards to, uh, you know, legalizing homosexual marriage. Yeah. Um, the kind of the question I have with that is um, how or what would your response be or how should we respond more so on a social aspect into what the ramifications of legalizing homosexuality marriage, what would be the ramifications of that? Now, I, like, I understand, um, and I think... Pretty clearly understand what the Bible says and what the Bible stances on that. Yeah. And then, but regarding like the social ramifications of it outside of the biblical perspective, yeah. more so on you know looking more a socioeconomic stance. Yeah. What would be kind of the, what would that look like in that regard? Because I'm not as well educated on that uh, particular matter. I, I think so, well, that's a great question. I think that you know socially, I think we'll see probably an increase of young people experimenting with homosexuality. Um, which will cause them great pain because it will be far more normalized. Um, I think we'll see that, definitely. Um, I think we will see... Uh, I, I, think, I think we'll see people that are, that are just broken from... I think, that, I think because we've made an idol out of marriage, I think that um, many homosexual people that now are going to get, get, get that validation, but... It's not going to be all that they've expected it to be, and they're going to be broken and busted up from that. So I think you're going to see divorce and pain. You're going to see, you're going to see children being adopted into... I think you'll see more children, because it's normalized now, you'll see children being adopted into those homes, and that will have great effect on those children's souls. Um, so I think there's all sorts of effects like that. Those are just a few off the top of my head. Yeah, I have, I have one more question to yeah. attach to that. That's all right. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, that's right. What would be, I don't know if there's quite the venue for this uh, particular question. Is that question. Jacob, by the way? I can't see you. Yeah, yes, sh- okay, yeah, hey, man. I know I'm like right in the, shadows, the spotlight. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Um, what would be some of the arguments against supporting homosexual marriage from um, a socioeconomic standpoint, more so outside of, again, kind of the point, I'm, the reason I'm asking yeah. this is oftentimes when I'm in debate or discussion with those who yeah. don't believe in the Bible, yeah. the automatic is like, well, you're a Christian, you're a Bible thumper, you're not going to believe. It's like, yes, and I, I'm not as well-versed in mm-hmm. articulating my stance outside of biblical views on yeah. more of a, like I said, more of a legal sense. Yeah, that's a good question. I guess I, I think I'd probably want to think about that maybe, Jacob, and okay. get back with you, unless somebody else has some thoughts on that. Um, that's, a, that's a really good question, and I understand your desire there is you're wanting to maybe come at another angle, just bring kind of all truth to bear, just kind of in this culture and society. Um, I understand the question. I don't know that I can think of anything off the top Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Thank you. Good question though, Jacob. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a difficult. Danny says um, that it's, it's hard to use worldly wisdom. And, and Jacob, I, I, I lean on, and I, I am not saying that I don't believe in apologetics and good reasoning as that a means that God can use. I'm not saying that. I think that that is something Christians should think deeply about. 
But I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm at my heart. I'm just a big sovereignty of God guy. I think that, I think that, that, that people walk in darkness or light, and I think we're just completely dependent on God to bring people from darkness to light. Second Corinthians four, He's shown in our hearts the gospel, and it comes alive. So I don't want you to feel like you need to back away from. I think you keep sharing the truth, and God. That's what this pastor, Jacob. You should read. Oh, brother, you should read that book that, um, that that Colby got, um, the Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert that shows just the winsome, kind, gracious, persistent, patient sharing of the gospel with a person who didn't believe in biblical authority at all. God used it over time to break down the barriers of Rosaria's heart and to um, bring her to faith. And so thank you for saying that, Danny, because that really helped me think about that more deeply. But that's not just a wham, bam, bust somebody in the head with a Bible track and say, that's truth, believe it, walk off. You know, like, I mean... That's not gracious and kind. You know, this drop-the-mic type of evangelism. I, just, I mean, what the heck? I mean, come on. We need to love people. Yeah, and there's in the resource room, yeah. Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert talks about her conversion over several years of this pastor faithfully coming alongside her. Now, I realize we don't have that type of time in every relationship, but it's the, it, it is the, it's the highlights the power of God to save by bringing light into darkness. Yeah. Good question. Down front right here, Byron. Yes, sir. Let's get the mic so you can... He's coming your way. What's your name, man? I'm Luke. Luke? All right. I have a sibling who is um, going through this struggle right now. Yes. And um, she recently said that she, and I quote, couldn't come to believe in a God or continue to believe in a God who would condemn same-sex relations what would your response be toward that yeah that's a great question and in this little book here um he he addresses that very thing but i think that 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 objection i think applies to not just people that have same-sex attraction desires it applies to all sinners The, the real question is i just don't think god should send anybody to hell and there's just so much bound up into that I mean what, what, what is the center of the universe there is our definition of what love and justice is rather than God's and so I would just very gently say to him that hey look we in the Bible whether it's homosexuality or any other sin the culpability for rejection the culpability for separation is always on us not on God and um, yeah there's just so much more that we could say there that I'd want to I'd want to I'd want to dig into a person's heart and say like God is offering you like like joy you you don't need to be rejected God's not rejecting you you're you're rejecting him because he you know he's glorious and he's good he created you he makes how can the pot say to the potter you know I can do what I want no, he sets the, he's the creator. So, but I, you know, brother, again, that's not a drop the mic situation either. You know, that's a laboring with somebody and praying with him. And Luke, I mean, brother, pray for God's grace on your sister. Um, but I think that objection's for any person outside of Christ. So, I don't know if I helped you much there, brother, but I'd get this book and and read that chapter on that. Yeah. Yes, is that Anna Bryson in the back there? Hand, raise that hand. You got, a, you got a mic? 
Yes. Oh, okay. Whoa, that's yeah. loud. I yeah. did not realize that was going to be so loud. Um, all right, so my question, I, I understand uh, where the church's mm-hmm. uh, stance on gay marriage should be. Um, my question is more from from a professional standpoint and from a business standpoint. Yeah. Um, businesses that are impacted by this, um, whether it's photographers or um, people who work in flowers or people who make wedding invitations. Yeah. Um, you know, what is what is our response to be as believers? Yeah. You know, do we um, work in that industry taking money for something that we don't necessarily agree with or do we make a stand and, yeah, and what a, should that be? That's a great question, Anna. Um, my personal conviction, and I would just have a lot of, I would have a lot of grace towards a Christian who maybe differed with me on this, but my personal conviction would be that if I were to, if I were a florist, that I would, I would have a difficult time. I would not provide, because it, you're witnessing, you're, you're, you're celebrating, you're coming alongside, and I would abstain from that. And we, we see that's all over the news, people. So I think Christians, um, there's a way to, I think, be loving and gracious and not hostile and um, mean-spirited. But to say to a person, look, I can't participate in this because I love you. And I think for me to participate in this would be an endorsement, and I don't want to do that. So out of love, I'm going to abstain from this. Now, I think there's so many layers to this, Anna. What if you work for a company? You know, yeah, that's hard. Yeah, I think, I think each situation has its nuances, and that's why God gives us a church. He gives us older Christians to give us wisdom. But uh, kind of a blanket answer, if I were a florist or a printer or, you know, something like that, uh, I would not serve um, a homosexual wedding. I wouldn't go to a reception. Um, if I had a... If I had a let me put it to you this way. If I had a family member or a child that were homosexual and they came and said to me, Dad, I'm going to marry my same-sex lover, I would not go to that wedding. I would not go to that reception. It would break my heart. But I certainly would stay in relationship with that child. And after the wedding, I would invite that child and their, um, their partner over to my house and they would eat at my table and I would want to be in a relationship with them. They wouldn't engage in any of those acts under my house. So I wouldn't cut, but, you know, so, I mean, Anna, there's a thousand iterations of that argument, but I would, I would not participate in that with my professional services. Yeah. And I know, well, I'm, uh, even as I'm saying, I'm thinking of you, you, that's the industry you're in, right? So that's very difficult. Yeah, that's very difficult. Yeah. But if, uh, Anna, I would have a lot of compassion for somebody, if you're not the owner of the company, and the owner of the company comes to you and you need this job for your livelihood. I mean, I'm, I, you know, there's just so many nuances there. I, I would just have a lot of compassion um, for a person in that situation. Um, and it's, it's easy for you to say, yeah, well, I'd quit my job. Well, you know, th- then you may be jeopardizing other people in your world and it might not be the most honorable thing to do. You know, I, so that's where I think we've got to pray and ask for God's wisdom. Good question. Anything else? going once. Yeah, John. We've got the microphone coming to you, Colonel, sir. I love calling colonels by their first name. It just makes me feel good. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) John. Yes, John. Those that are in uh, (coughs) these relationships and they're already married to 
a uh, same-sex spouse and they have children um, and their question is okay what a what do you do with your family that you're now married to? I mean, if they get to the point where they uh, re want to repent of mm -hmm. it, what do they do with their kids who are now in a marriage? You mm -hmm. know, um, and their question of, well, when you have people in the church that were, uh, they were married to other people and they got divorced and they got remarried and mm -hmm. they become Christians. Yeah. They don't typically split up yeah. and and yet is that what we're supposed to do? Yeah. I mean Well, that's a that's a great question. I would say that um, although the state may call same sex marriage marriage, I don't think it's marriage. But I do think that a marriage between a man and a woman that are unbelievers is marriage. So I, don't th I think it's a bit of an apples to oranges. I understand your question, and it's a good one. So that's why the difference is, I think we could say to a, 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 a couple that is not Christian, they're married, one of them converts and becomes a Christian. We see that addressed in 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter. Paul says, stay in that marriage, because that is a marriage between a man and a woman that God, even though you were unbelievers, God ordains. But this relationship between a man and a woman, just because the United States or Denmark or some other whack country has called it a marriage, doesn't mean it's marriage. And I would say, so the difference is, yes, flee that unlawful relationship. Repent of your sin. And now then, let's come around with a lot of wisdom to think about how do we care for this child then. Yeah, absolutely. But do you see what I'm saying? So I don't think, I, I think we're comparing apples to apples. Because... Um, non-Christian marriage is a legitimate institution. Non-Christian no, I mean, non heterosexual marriage is a legitimate institution. Same-sex marriage is not marriage at all. Yeah, good question. Our, the, our government doesn't agree with that, but obviously we, we should as Christians. Anything else? Right down here, Jr. Is that you right, right there? Is that yeah? Orioles slash Florida slash Ravens fan. You know that's right. <laughs> okay, well I kind of wanted to mention something real briefly. Yeah. Some questions that were coming up in my mind. So when Ann asked that question concerning um, like working in like the wedding it, business industry or whatever, yeah. dealing with people who come up to you and they're asking you to provide a service. <clears throat> I mean, the Bible does call us to be a light. Yeah. Uh, light to the world, mm -hmm. the salt of the earth, mm -hmm. okay? We're going to actually do that text this Sunday, in fact, Matthew 5, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Jesus also told his disciples that uh, in order to be the greatest, you must be the least. Yeah. So are we not missing an opportunity to display the grace of God to the world because yeah. we're hidden inside our comfort zones? Mm -hmm. So I guess in essence what I'm trying to say is like, I hear what you mean. I, I know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. When you mention like, um, you know, not wanting to give them approval, yeah. But your simple approval of like serving them, it's like Bible also talks about how Jesus he ate with sinners, mm -hmm. and the Pharisees gave him a hard time for that. Yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, I hear what you're saying on that, but I don't think that 
completely defines the grace of God, which yeah. you were talking that we do need to exa- right. like right. Um, just give to people who really need it the most. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a good point. So let me interject there if you have I would eat with homosexuals, and I would share grace with them, but I think to... Um, when you attend a wedding, it's more than just attending. In the, it, really, the his, history of the church to attend it, to, to bear witness. So the preacher says, we're gathered before God and these witnesses. So I think that you're actually not loving that person when you are endorsing their sin. So that's not what Jesus is doing when he's eaten with sinners. So he's not, attend, he's not attending a festival or a, 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 um, um, something that is endorsing. So we're going to handle this this week, uh, this Sunday, Josh to be salt and light. Salt is a preservative that burns, it burns, it purifies. So we are to have this purifying effect as we take a stand against sin and light where we proclaim the gospel and call people to God's grace. So I don't think that it's, I I, I think that there is a, a gracious line between not condoning, which I think to go to a wedding as a witness is, is not to say that we're cutting them off and we're not going to be gracious to them. So I would eat with a homosexual and a sinner, but I wouldn't bear witness to their sin. Touche. I'm not talking about going to their weddings. I'm yeah. talking about like you're, you provide a business to them, as she was ah. talking about. Yeah. And like you build a cake for them. Yeah. And like is your cake any less, you know, a witness of the gospel to them because they pay you to make it? Yeah. And that's your, you know, your ministry to the world. Yeah, and again, I, I, think that, I think that participating in that ceremony is bearing witness. My wife is a pediatrician. Let me give you an example. And she has a reputation amongst the... Uh, it's funny. She's got a reputation amongst Christians as, a, as, as a, I guess, a pastor's wife that will pray with you. She also has a reputation amongst lesbian couples as a doctor who would be gracious to them. So it is good and right and just for Jennifer to treat the child of a lesbian couple. And she should do that, and she should love on that child and serve them in that way but there's a big difference between that and going to um, um, a a wedding if I were owning a restaurant and a homosexual couple came into the restaurant that I ate at I would serve them food but I wouldn't cater their wedding and bear witness to the inauguration of their sin yeah yeah so I think there's a difference does that that distinction make, make the yeah Good point, JR. Good point. And I'm sorry about your Orioles not making the playoffs. <laughs> Maybe next year. <laughs> Maybe next year. And aren't the Ravens like one and four or something like that? Okay, yeah, gotcha. All right, okay. Yes. How about one more question and then we'll wrap it up. One more question, or maybe not anymore at all. One more. Going once, going twice. All right, well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. And um, if you have any questions, I'll stick around. Lord, we, um, again, we, this is not just a, a topic in a test tube that we're just going to stare at like it's a science experiment. We're talking about people, people that we love. Uh, we're talking about Luke's sister. We're talking about maybe sons and daughters, moms and dads, cousins, people that we care very much about. And Lord, I pray that we would be a type of church that Um, sees this issue rightly, that you would give us a beautiful and compelling mixture of faithfulness to the scripture and compassion for broken people. And that we would call people to Christ who is, as the scriptures say, he is better by far 
He's better than sexual sin. He's better than heterosexual marriage. He's better than kids. He's better than riches. He's better. He's better. You are better. And so, Lord, we pray that we would call people to Christ, who is the sovereign king of the universe, who bids people to come and follow him, to die to themselves and experience true joy. Give us that type of wisdom as a church. And we pray that you might flood this church with people that are refugees, broken people. That you might bring people who are struggling with same-sex attraction to this church. And that we wouldn't be goofy, insecure Christians that stand over in the corner and wonder what we're going to do. But that we would be people that uh, put our arms around people, love them, love them by telling them the truth, and walking alongside them. And praying that you would turn on the light in their hearts. Lord, make us this type of church. Make this the place where broken people come to hear about the truth of Jesus from all walks of life. And we pray all of these, all of these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.